The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. First of all, thanks to the organisers of the conference for inviting me to speak today. And thanks to Susan for her introduction. Um, <clears throat> William Cecil, first Baron Gordon, towering figure of the of Elizabethan England and the wider Church State. Uh, very intimidating figure to deal with in, in 20 minutes, uh, particularly uh, when you brought the wrong version of your notes. Today, uh, I have last Sunday's version, so I'm working from my iPhone and PowerPoint, very techie for, for me. Um, and uh, I, it, it's fully charged, so it should last. Um, it, in, in terms of, of, of Burley being an intimidating figure, he's very, very hard to summarize succinctly in terms of his impact as a politician and a statesman. I suppose the best I can do is to reflect my interest in Cecil, which I've done through the selection of the quotations on the screen. So what we have here is, is, is an interest on my part in this, is, is preeminence in business. I think I, I love Wallace C. McCaffrey's quote from the DMV, the center to which all public business gravitated. I'm also interested in his role in altering the course of England's religious history. Of course, uh, that, that's acknowledged on, on, on all sides of, 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 of the debate in early modern uh, England and, and, and Ireland. And again, just it, it, it's, it's, it's worth noting John Edwards, who um, has written very good biographies of Reginald Pole and, and Mary Tudor. So he, he, he absolutely sees Cecil as crucial to the achievement and the nature of Elizabeth's religious settlement. And finally, there is his impact in Ireland. And again, as, as uh, Chris McGinn's book, he, he made a very, very well-known point, but absolutely has to be hammered home, that, that Cecil consistently devoted his attention and considerable energies to the Kingdom of Ireland. So what I want to do uh, is to, to put the focus on, on uh, Cecil's role as architect of the Elizabethan Reformation in Ireland. And in doing that, uh, you're, you're bringing all of the three strands of, of, that I mentioned in the previous slide together. I suppose the first point to make here is, is a truism, but I think it's still very important. Cecil's thinking on religious reformation in Ireland was formed by his experiences during the reigns of Edward VI and Mary I. So I think it's worth having a brief fly through his early career. So after humanist education, which was undertaken successfully in St. John's College, Cambridge, and Gray's Inn in London in the 1530s and 40s, Cecil's career took off in Edward VI's reign when he entered the service of Protector of Somerset in 1547. Cecil was the Duke's secretary when the latter fell from power in 1549-50. And interestingly, because he was the great survivor, he did survive this initial uh, trauma uh, relatively unscathed, this kind of brief period in prison, emerging as a privy councillor and junior secretary of state from September 1551. 
throughout Edward's reign, he mixed in reformist circles and displayed a real interest in reform theology, especially in the nature of the sacrament of the altar. It was in this period too that he had his first real experience of the issue of introducing reform doctrine and practice in Ireland. And this included corresponding with Lord Deputy St. Ledger on the introduction of the Edwardian Book of Common Prayer. Through this experience, he became conversant with the inherent difficulties associated with this task, which were made manifest at a time when he was very much in the Privy Council in the decision of Archbishop Dowdell of Armagh to go into continental exile rather than countenance the abolition of the mass. And interestingly, um, like Dowdell, Cecil himself retired from public office on religious grounds under Queen Mary, but maintained good relations with the regime and observe, observed at close hand the Marian Restoration in England, a period in which he would also have some awareness of the impact of the return of Catholic doctrine and practice in Ireland, where it was received enthusiastically. All of that said, though, the most significant legacy of Cecil's Edwardian and Marian experiences, especially in hindsight, was his entry into Princess Elizabeth's service. By 1558, he was the leader of the flock of Hatfield, Elizabeth's government in waiting, and was appointed Secretary of State by the new Queen on the first day of her reign, 17th of November, 1558. And the flock of Hatfield, they did actually have uh, a, a religious strategy of, of sorts, ready to go as, as the, 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 the transitional regime. And it's reflected in a well-known document entitled The Device for the Alteration of Religion. Now, Ireland is only mentioned twice in this document, um, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's accounted among the dangers that may ensue upon the alteration. So you can see that the order, I'm not sure this is a hierarchical order, but um, that, 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 that could be an interesting discussion, uh, depending on one's viewpoint. Um, but I mean, the, 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 the analysis is, is interesting. Well, Rome was completely ruled out, of course, with, with, with any uh, attempt to uh, alter religion. The Bishop of Rome would sense and he will excommunicate the Queen's Highness, interdict, interdict the realms and give it to pray to all princes. And again, he then the, the document talks about the French, that they would be encouraging to war, um, and Scotland, of course. And then we get to Ireland. And, 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 and this, this point about Ireland, and, and it, it, it came out of the Edwardian and Marian experiences. Ireland also would be very difficult to stay in their obedience by reason of the clergy that is so addicted to Rome. Now you may be surprised to see just this little bit about England at the end, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain uh, more about that as we go on. What is said here, though, is that many people of our own, the English, would be very much discontented. Now, the second place where Ireland is mentioned is what remedy for these matters. And now we, 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 we hear about France, got to practice peace or it is offered not to refuse to take it. Rome is less to be doubted, from whom nothing is to be feared but evil will, cursing and practicing. Scotland will follow France for peace. And again, there is a an idea that you could, uh, you know, help forward divisions in Scotland, uh, especially to augment the hope of them who are inclined to go to religion. And then we come to Ireland and some of expense of money in Ireland. And that's, 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 that's it. I think the implication of this, and, 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 and I'm sure people will dispute this with me, but 
I think it's not unfair to say that the device displays little detailed knowledge of conditions on the ground in Ireland, especially with regard to the detailed analysis of the sources of potential discontent identified amongst the English people. And what, what's very interesting, and, and I, I haven't got any of this up on the slide, but in contrast to the analysis on Ireland, there's a very, very extensive analysis of, of, of the, the discontented English. And five categories are actually presented. Those who governed under Queen Mary, bishops and clergy who would see their own room, those of the papist sect, those who would balk at paying the subsidy and other taxes, and those who would favor reformed doctrine but disapproved of the retention of some old ceremonies. And we can see the future being mapped out here in terms of what's going to happen in, in Elizabeth England. And much of the document is, is basically setting out detailed plans for combating discontent in each of the five categories of, of the English discontented. In contrast to this English analysis, the device displayed little or no thinking in terms of the strategy that might be applied to counteract the Irish clergy's perceived addiction to Rome. The implication of this is that Cecil and the new regime would have to canvas a range of opinions and listen to many often discordant voices in formulating every policy and process related to religious change in Ireland. These voices and opinions would emanate from English officials based in England and in Ireland, English churchmen based in England and Ireland, together with a variety of voices representing local Irish interests. And we heard about that from, from David, how they, they would come through in a whole variety of forms. What I propose to do then is to examine policy formulation and its implementation in relation to three key areas associated with religious change. And Cecil was very much a part of all three. They are the primacy, filling of the vacancy in the Archbishop of Armagh, the introduction of the prayer book and Cecil's particular take on it, and then also the first of what were to be proven quite a number of schemes to found a university in Ireland. Primacy. Primatial See of Armagh became vacant on the death of Archbishop Dowdle in August 1558, only three months before Elizabeth's succession. The vacancy provided an opportunity for Cecil to stamp his authority on the Irish Church at the outset of the reign and to set out a clear course for its reformation. But this was an area where the legacy of the preceding reigns really did impinge upon his thinking, and maybe not for the best. I mean, he would have reflected on, because he was very much at this, uh, in, in the political inner circle when this happened, he was around when Archbishop Cranmer made his ill-fated attempt to promote the Englishman, Hugh Goodacre, to the primacy in place of the exiled Dowdle in 1552. So they were actually dealing with this, you know, replacing the same man, both in Edward's reign and, 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 and at the beginning of Elizabeth's reign. Good, Goodacre actually never set foot in his diocese diocese and was suspected by Bishop Bale of having been poisoned by Catholic priests in Dublin. So again, that would have fed into the, the, the myth of the addiction to Rome. But there was a more important legacy, I think, coming from the most recent past. Lord Lieutenant Sussex, as he now was, held, and he was continuing as, as, as the Chief Governor of Ireland, held strong views on the type of person that should be hoped that should hold the office which he had formed when serving 
as Queen Mary's Viceroy in 1556. Sussex wanted a loyalist who would give unquestioning support to his Ulster policy, which was framed around the idea of expulsing the Scots and subjugating their Irish patron, Shane O'Neill, the leading but unrecognised contender to see, succeed Combucca O'Neill as Earl of Tyrone. Sussex did not want an native Irish successor to Dowdle, whether English, Irish, or Gaelic Irish. He feared such a person would misguidedly attempt in his eyes to utilize the primacy as a means of reaching a peaceful accommodation with Shane, as Archbishop Dowdle had done, or even perhaps openly supporting Shane's efforts to succeed the earldom. As a result, Cecil, Cecil was subjected to intense lobbying from Lieutenant, Lord Lieutenant Sussex and the supporters. Mm -hmm. And he responded in a very hesitant manner. An appointment to the primacy was not made until March 1562, nearly four years after Dowdle's death. Ultimately, Cecil listened to Sussex, who, who had been, as I said, reappointed as chief governor on Elizabeth's succession. Um, and what he effectively did, he, he accepted a job profile that Sussex had actually uh, drafted in the preceding reign and, and, and one that it was almost a generic job description for any or all bishoprics in Ulster. Uh, it, it, it is worth reading it, it out because it, 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 it actually, it is something that the, the English administration in Ireland always were grappling with, whether they should appoint local men or English men to bishoprics. Well, what, what the Dan Fitzwalter later, uh, uh, Earl of Sussex said to Mary in, in, in 1556 was that he would wish a discreet man to be sent out of England who should be a bishop of these parts as well, who should be bishop of these parts as well to sue the premises absorbed in this diocese as also to give an example to other bishops to do the like in reforming of the diocese and their ministers under them, who, it is as pitiful as true, be more the common spies and messengers of mischief and make their churches not only in the north but also through the most of Ireland like to stables for horses and herd houses for cattle than holy places to minister with due reverence the most blessed sacraments in and use them as apparent by the filth in the more to that purpose than to the other which ungodliness among Christian men may please your majesty to see abolished and the disorder reformed. And in the few years in between uh, Sussex writing that and then the need to replace Archbishop Dowdle, thinking hadn't really moved on and, and, and was very much at the, the, the forefront of the decision to appoint Dowdle's successor. So as I said, Sussex view ultimately held sway with, with Cecil and the man who was appointed was his chaplain, the Yorkshireman Adam Loftus. He was appointed in March 1562 on the Lord Lieutenant's recommendation and with Cecil's support. What's interesting is that there were some good Irish candidates that might have been considered. One of the most interesting and, and, and potentially one that, that, that would have really worked for the administration was the Dean of Armagh, Terence Daniel, sorry, Terence Daniel, uh, or, or to use his uh, Irish name, Terence O'Dongla or Donnelly, as it's been emphasized. Donnelly was a, a man with strong local connections in the diocese. He was Shane O'Neill's foster brother, 
and had acted as a go-between the English administration in Ireland and the Neil Lordship since the early 1550s. Overlooking Donnelly was not a wise decision. Loftus' appointment proved to be entirely ineffective as he had no local support. Sussex was not even able to secure his election by the Armagh chapter. Dean Donnelly had to inform Sussex that the chapter, quote, were of the greatest party temporal men and Shane O'Neill's horsemen. He so sparkled and out of order as he can no means assemble them to proceed to the election. The appointment of Loftus, in effect, was nominal. He remained an absentee primate, holding the deanery of St. Patrick's Cathedral in command. And he actually just stayed in Dublin for his entire archiepiscopate. And interestingly, uh, to quote Kieran, he, he, he was able to uh, call Cecil. And in fact, in 1567, after five years in the primacy, having not set foot in his diocese, he successfully petitioned Cecil for his translation to the Sea of Dublin informing the secretary that Armagh was neither worth anything to me, nor I able to do any good in it, for that altogether it lieth among the Irish. Cecil's decision to follow Sussex's advice on primacy and his own instincts to avoid appointing anyone with a questionable allegiance to the new religious order, even if it was not very pronounced, backfired spectacularly. And it also displayed I think a certain lack of empathy to local sensitivities in Ireland, which was characteristic of so many English statesmen and churchmen in this period. It was evident, even from the past 20 years of events in Ireland, that any Archbishop of Armagh would have to engage with local interests throughout the diocesan territory, including the O'Neill Lordship of the Throne, if he was to make any impact on affairs in Ulster, including conciliating the Irish. The appointment of Loftus in 1562 failed badly on this account. However, that said, Cecil's empathy was not entirely lacking. In one area, and one which was particularly dear to him, there is some evidence that he recognised local conditions, local needs, and local realities. This related to the use of the Latin tongue in administering the services of the Elizabethan Book of Common Prayer. possibility of using a Latin version of the prayer book or any of its constituent services was not a new issue uh, for Cecil. He had given it consideration in Edward VI's reign in his engagements with Lord Deputy St. Ledger in 1551. Ahead of his appointment as deputy in the summer of 1550, St. Ledger had sought authorization to have the communion service in the first Edwardian Book of Common Prayer translated into Latin and to employ the services of one Mr. Smith to undertake the translation. Possibly, um, and I cannot say for certain, but possibly the humanist intellectual Thomas Smith. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it, there, there, there aren't very many other candidates, and as you can see, Smith had some interest in this. Interestingly, though, although St. Ledger had pursued this course, his final instructions did not make provision for such uh, use of a Latin service. Instead, he was enjoined by the Privy Council at the time that where the inhabitants do not understand it, the English is to be translated truly into the Irish tongue till such time as the people may be brought to understand the English. St. Ledger, though, nonetheless, he, he procured a Latin translation of the communion service. He also deployed it on a pilot base in Limerick City in early 1551 and significantly 
informed Cecil he had done so. This suggests that St. Ledger felt Cecil may well have been sympathetic uh, to, to, to uh, sorry, that Cecil may well have been sympathetic to St. Ledger's own conciliatory approach to religious form, perhaps even to the point of turning a blind eye, like St. Ledger, to those English-speaking conservative clergymen in Ireland would have countenanced counterfeiting the mass in the guise of a Latin version of the English communion service, but who over time could then have been drawn by familiarity into allegiance to the prayer book. St. Ledger's Edwardian scheme to use the Latin prayer book had a subtle motivation. It was conceived as a way of enticing conservative clerics to remain in the state church once the prayer book was promulgated, especially its close political ally at the time, Archbishop Dowdle of Armagh, who was critical in his efforts to achieve lasting political reform in Ulster. The scheme did not last very long, however. St. Ledger's political enemies in Dublin rounded upon him, making hay of the fact that he had openly protected the religious conservative Dowdle from censure and complaining ceaselessly that he was a papist. St. Ledger was, called, was recalled in, in, in April 1551, part at least on account of the revelation that he had papers in his possession which maintained the doctrines of the real presence and transubstantiation. These were most probably written by his friend Dowdle, who set out the latter's religious position rather than St. Ledger's, as his enemies claimed. The subsequent decision of Archbishop Dowdle following St. Ledger's recall to go into religious exile because he was unwilling to serve as a bishop where the mass was abolished seemed to confirm position of St. Ledger's enemies, and certainly put pay to any prospect that the scheme to maintain a Latin communion service uh, might be continued. In hindsight, though, it is clear that the scheme had fallen with St. Ledger's recall. Dowdle left Ireland, and uh, because he read St. Ledger's recall as a rejection of that possibility, especially after a meeting held in mid-summer between Dowdle and St. Ledger's successor, Sir James Cross, Sir James Croft, which at the very least gave the Archbishop no comfort. Continuous lobbying by St. Ledger's enemies, especially Archbishop Brown of Dublin, in which they imputed that the recall deputy was religiously at one with the now departed of Archbishop of Armagh, led to St. Ledger's banishment from court for a time in 1552 and a Privy Council inquiry into his religious beliefs. He was clear, eventually cleared of all suspicion, though he had to go to considerable lengths to prove that he was not a papist. Campion attests that he, St. Ledger, to be accounted forward and pliable to the taste of King Edward VI, his reign, rhymed against the real presence for his pastime and let the papers fall where courtiers, courtiers might light their arm, who greatly magnified pith and conveyance of that noble summit. Bearing all this in mind, it comes as something of surprise then to see that the scheme was revisited in 1560 when the Elizabethan prayer book was established in Ireland through the Act of Irish, Irish Act of Uniform, excuse me. Is only a partial surprise, however. Cecil's familiarity with the scheme, the fact that St. Ledger had detected in him some sympathy for the, the idea in the early 1550s, together with St. Ledger's successful purgation and Cecil's formal sanctioning of, of the Irish Act of Uniformity in 1560, clearly identifies him as the motive force behind its revival in 1560. It is also significant that Thomas Smith may have been associated with associated with the earlier work, even as far as translating communion service for St. Ledger. The device for the alteration of religion, which has been attributed by some historians to Cecil directly, and by all to a circle, the flock of Hotfield, made provision for Smith 
to chair a committee of seven Protestant clergymen, the so-called Smith Committee, which through its deliberation, though its deliberations are poorly documented and disputed by historians, appears to have played a critical role in revising the 1552 prayer book ahead of and during the English Parliament's introduction of the English Act of Uniformity in 1559. How much Ireland figured in these matters, or sorry, how much Ireland figured in these discussions is not now known, but the prominence of Cecil and Smith in these matters and their probable past involvement in the Latin Communion service in Ireland in 1551 is strong circumstantial evidence that at the very least they had no objections to the revival of the scheme in 1560. Indeed, one could probably one can and probably should go further. Given the perception that the Irish clergy were addicted to Rome, especially after five years of Marian Catholicism, and their willingness to engage with St. Edward's scheme in the 1550s, they would have appreciated more strongly the need to win the clergy's loyalty by allowing some leeway to them in, the, in their administration of the prayer book services. Provision in the Act of Uniformity 1560 for the use of Latin versions of the text of the Elizabethan prayer book was to all intents and purposes an official revival of St. Ledger's semi official scheme of a decade earlier. The provision was intended to provide for those places in the realm where there cannot be found English ministers to serve in the churches or places appointed for common prayer or to administer the sacraments to the people. Like St. Ledger's, earlier scheme and sanctioned the use, of, the use of Latin rather than Irish translations of the prayer book services. When we take Cecil's approach to the primacy of the prayer book together, it's, 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 it's quite interesting in, in terms of trying to get a fix of where he stood on things, but it is quite a eclectic approach. Uh, it, he, he, he seemed to always goes through the same process. He would take soundings from a wide range of actors, tested some of the latter against his own personal experience, and in the end made pragmatic decisions, which were informed by certain dearly held religious principles. The problem, however, is that it can hardly be claimed that it amounts to a coherent strategy. Observing the Irish situation from a distance and buffeted to and fro by the opinions of rarely disinterested parties, Cecil oscillated between conciliatory and hardline policies in a sometimes confused and certainly inconsistent manner. This may well have been the inevitable and unwelcome lot of the great but exceedingly busy man of affairs. We may also be tempted or even very willing to look sympathetically on his predicament. However, the inconsistency and confusion of religious policy in Elizabethan Ireland in the opening decade of the reign, which will become a characteristic of the reign as a whole, is best exemplified in the final area of Cecil's Reformation practice, the attempt to establish a university in St. Patrick's Cathedral in the mid-1560s. The need to establish a university in Ireland had long been recognised, but took on a keener edge in the late 1550s and early 1560s. Apart from the humanist belief in the value of learning as a civilising force, which was shared by many across the religious divide, divide. The, the officials and clergymen on both sides of that divide perceived the need to improve the learning of the Irish clergy in order to develop their capacity as preaching pastors capable of winning over souls to their respective religious positions. And interestingly again, and here we see this sort of the, the continuity of thought between the Marian period and the Elizabethan period, albeit uh, with different perspectives. Uh, it's the same concerns 
underpinned the petition made by Archbishop Dowdle before the English Privy Council in the summer of 1558, just before he died, in, in which he contended that it would be very expedient for that whole realm to erect a new university in it, whereby learning shall increase, and by learning the people be brought to know their duty to God first and next to their prince, and so then brought to obey the prince's laws, was such a necessity live civil and quiet. Well, that's a, a petition that could have been written by a Catholic or a Protestant at any point in 1540s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Interestingly too, Dowdle also suggested that it should be funded by the Crown to appropriate in dynastic benefices. And recent legislation in the Marian Parliament had actually handed over all the appropriations that was never actually affected to uh, Cardinal Pole. So had that uh, regime continued, it's possible that may have actually happened. Who knows? Cecil, who spent time in St. John's College, Cambridge, and was a keen exponent, exponent of human learning, was particularly interested in this subject. Though no legislation was brought forward in the Irish Parliament in 1560 to establish an Irish university. Nevertheless, it was clearly on the agenda. The Irish Act of, Uni of, of Supremacy, sorry, not the uniformity, anticipated its foundation by stipulating that any persons promoted or preferred to any degree learning in any year university that hereafter shall be within this realm will be obliged to take the oath of supremacy. So here's a Kieran's great, 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 great cousin, 25 times a month. <laughs> The, the scheme for an Irish university emerged in 1563, having been conceived in the spring, sorry, in period spring 1561 to spring 1563 by Cecil and Hugh Brady. And interestingly, Hugh Brady was an Irish born Protestant and graduate of Oxford, who had held a rectory of all hollows in Honey Lane in London. And he had come to Cecil to notice through Edmund Brindle, the Bishop of London. So clearly, this was a man who was not addicted to Rome albeit he was from Ireland, and, uh, he, but it, 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 it required the testimony of Edmund Grindle, uh, whose uh, religious position was entirely unambiguous to, to uh, uh, bring him to the notice of Cecil. Again, too, Cecil looked to the recent past for guidance and drew on a device drawn up by Archbishop Brown of Dublin circa 1548, to found the university from the revenues of the then dissolved St. Patrick's Cathedral. The idea of using ecclesiastical revenues also echoed Archbishop Dowd's Catholic proposal for a university, which saw the Crown's monastic revenues as a potential, potential source <laughs> of endowment. Yet while Brady, sorry, while Cecil and Brady, like Archbishop Brown, also planned to use the revenues of St. Patrick's to found their university, the context in which the Brown and Cecil Brady's schemes were conceived were somewhat different. Brown's scheme was a defiant, though politic rearguard action against the Henrician secularization of church property and aimed to revive St. Patrick's in the guise of a university and under another name, as well as re-establishing its traditional role as the administrative pope of his own diocese. His device had been written about a year after St. Patrick's had been dissolved on the second last day of Henry VIII's life by Lord Deputy St. Ledger. Cecil and Brady, in contrast, wished to destroy St. Patrick's again, in effect, 
which in 1555 had been restored by Mary Tudor, and which now in 1563 stood as a symbol of Catholicism, being staffed by a body of clergy who, in Cecil and Brady's eyes, confirmed their belief that the Irish clergy were addicted to Rome. Hugh Brady, who was appointed Bishop of Meath by Cecil at the same time as the scheme for the university was announced, and Archbishop of Loftus of Armagh, as he was still at this point, emerged as the chief cheerleaders for the scheme. They were driven by an ambiguous Protestant ideology, which comprehended throughout a fierce critique of St. Patrick's, the majority of whom were Marian nominees for the Catholic conservatism and inability and unwillingness to preach. Frustratingly for Brady and Loftus, progress was slow on its implementation due to the overt resistance of Archbishop Corwin of Dublin, who stoutly defended his diocese patrimony, and the more discreet resistance of figures like Sir Thomas Cusack, who thought the entire project would be unnecessarily disruptive in Irish affairs. So what Cusack did, he didn't actually directly resist it, but he did uh, send some of the prebendaries over to England and uh, so with recommendations, listen to, to this man here. You might have something to say that's interesting. And, and, and that may well have opened up some doors to Cecil. Can't prove it, but certainly I, I, it, it is a possibility. The frustration of Brady, I think, is, is, is nicely captured in a letter to Cecil written in January 1565. And there is blunt talking here. And it, 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 it is language that Cecil at the time would probably responded quite positively to. I can say nothing, but I know the devil that envy so godly an act that is suppressing St. Patrick's. There be a sort of dumb dogs maintained, of the living enemies to the truth, and all setters forth thereof, neither teaching nor feeding, saving themselves. I speak generally of them from bishop to petty canon, none but the skies dissemblers. They say themselves they be old bottles and cannot away with this new wine. For God's love, let there be new gotten that may away with it. The tender youth of this land, placed in their room and brought up in learning, will make this land to flourish. Happy and twice happy shall the bringers hereof to pass be. Their names shall be registered in the book of perpetual memory. Archbishop Corwin and cathedral clergy mounted to the, the, the defense of the cathedral. And <laughs> when you read it, the arguments that they put forward, uh, the best version of it is a, a copy. It's, it, it's, it's in a letter to the Earl of Pembroke. So they were lobbying uh, across the board in England. Uh, it, 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 it's on first sight that the, their, their arguments, they, they, they lack the rhetorical force and clarity of thought of their Protestant opponents. Um, I was particularly taken by these two arguments. They argued rather speciously that Ireland had no need of a university, quote, for here be no promotions to, to bestow upon clerks when they be learned. So let's not have one. There's, 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 there's actually quite a contemporary resonance <laughs> for, for PhD students. <laughs> um, they also maintained that the university would be unprofitable. And this is, this is fantastic quote. For the Irish enemies under color of study would send their friends hither who would learn the secrets of the country 
and advertised them there, thereof, so that the Irish rebels should by them know the privity of the English pale. Now, as you can imagine, the, <laughs> I don't think these arguments have much sway uh, with William Cecil, but there was one argument that did eventually strike a chord. And, and this is how Corwin and the cathedral uh, clergy framed it. Their prebends be parish churches, having cure of soul, and therefore needful to be disposed, sorry, bestowed upon ancient men and not among young scholars. The whole profit of them standeth in tides without any temporal land, which now corn being extremely dear and somewhat worth, but if the price of corn shall fall, they shall be of too small value to help any number of scholars. Now, Cecil is looking at this, and at the very time that he hears this, he's keenly aware that there's a growing movement among the forward Protestants in England who are showing great disgruntlement with the laicization of tithes. He also would have also taken note of the fact that, that relying on the price of corn not be, might not be a stable basis for endowing a university. So the alarm bells began to sound. The scheme wasn't pulled straight away, uh, and there is something of a silence over the next year. But at the 11th hour, in, in, around June 1566, at the point when Corwin and the cathedral clergy had actually resigned themselves to their unhappy fate, Cecil shocked Loftus and Brady by revealing that he was now, quote, against the conversion of the tithes, contrary, contrary to the use of the institution from the use of their pastors. St. Patrick's was safe. The foundation of a university to train the first generation of native Protestant clerics in Ireland would have to wait for another day. There were a few more schemes be between the 1556 scheme and uh, finally the foundation of Trinity in, in the 1590s. So what can we conclude from all of that? Um, well, the first thing to say, I think Cecil's, Cecil's reputation as a great statesman, I think, remains to this day undimmed. And, and, and I would say it is impossible when one peruses his annotations to count his papers and state papers and his voluminous correspondence and memoranda not to be impressed by the breadth of his activities and his ability to retain his position of power at the summit of the Elizabethan state for such a long period of time. That said, as the architect of the Eton Reformation in Ireland, his judgment and strategic capacity are more questionable. His early acquisition of the conviction that the Irish clergy were addicted to Rome was crude and denied him the possibility of pursuing a more nuanced and subtle reformation, such as the Henrician Viceroy St. Ledger and his ally Archbishop Dowdle had successfully attempted in the 1540s. His physical distance from Ireland led to a dependence on the opinions of those closer to the scene, though he tended to listen more intently to those who reflected back his own ideological preferences. Despite his erudition and hard work, he was not the all-seeing eye, especially on Irish affairs. In the matter of St. Patrick's and the establishment of the university, he did not seem to have grasped that the rich prebends of the cathedral were funded from tithes that emanated from about one third of all parochial cures in the Diocese of Dublin, in contrast to the prebends of English sacred cathedrals, 
which were generally funded by endowments of land. He did find this out, but three years in to the, the, the having announced the plan that the uh, suppression of St. Patrick's to found the university would take place. So overall, the Elizabethan Re Reformation got off to a very rocky start. There were, the primacy was in a sense brought into disrepute through the law of disappointment. And the, the university scheme did not get off the ground either. And both of those were, were critical factors in, in, in setting a course for the Reformation at the outside, uh, sorry, at the outside of the new regime. It's arguable too that it never fully recovered from this setback. <coughs> there were signs in Cecil with the university, sorry, with the uh, Latin prayer book that there was some flexibility, but as religious positions hardened over time and moving into the 1580s and 1590s, the actual use of a Latin prayer book became hugely problematical in terms of enforcing the Reformation. Uh, although it was allowed by law, it was actually quite common in Dublin parishes, though very strangely, and, and, and other parts of the pale, not just not in the Irish districts where it was supposed to be used. Uh, though strangely, we don't, we, I, I don't think there are any surviving books from this period, but there are uh, memos in the uh, Privy Council registrars uh, in, in England uh, lamenting the fact that the Latin prayer book was being used in the 1580s and 1590s. So, I think it's, it's very difficult to, to, to come to any other conclusion that if Cecil was the principal architect of the Reformation in the Tudor state, and by, that includes Ireland, he, almost, he must also be judged to be one of the chief architects of its ultimate failure in its Irish context. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jim. That was fascinating. I didn't hear you here taking up the challenges. I'm going to take a quick question at the end and then hand it over to Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, so <clears throat> um, the title, uh, uh, um, as mentioned, is slightly different than the Bill of Sale, uh, but my purpose is, is fairly similar to, to examine how the management of, of what was the overarching problem of the um, uh, succession uh, came to bear on um, more political um, issues of religious conformity. Um, and the sewer title uh, is, is a nod to the shared heritage of, of both the new regime and its coming men, who uh, the traditional nobility certainly regarded as the spawn of cattle raiders on the marches. Um, and, and that, uh, again, is going to come across in, in what we talk about. Uh, the illustration is, is Paul uh, De La Roche's rather overblown uh, early 19th century death of Elizabeth. Um, 
so the succession basically is the dominant uh, lurking presence for most of the 16th century. And initially uh, for the Tudor regime, uh, their, their tactic was quite simple. It was elimination. So the, uh, 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 the surviving Plantagenet Clements, Warwick, Buckingham, Courtney, and Margaret Pole were simply um, disposed of. But as the uh, regime moves forward, a different tack is taken and uh, uh, they seek to legislate uh, and it becomes an administrative process piloted uh, initially uh, by the febrile uh, brain of Cromwell and taken up uh, by Burley and his son Cecil. Uh, but I think as time and events will demonstrate, it was not a flawless solution by any means. Um, Cecil himself, uh, Robert rather than William, is an interesting uh, um, character. Uh, he grew up with Robert Devereux, who incidentally was the ward of, of William, and they were very different personalities and very different people. Uh, but I think that has quite a significant impact on, on, on Robert's career. Um, he uh, was educated at Gray's Inns, uh, St. John's in Cambridge, like his father. He was the third chancellor of this institution and uh, provided a safe haven for Walter Travers and Henry Avely, uh, who uh, uh, Whitcliffe had run out of Cambridge um, and in the process uh, uh, made this uh, university briefly an outlier of Ramism uh, in Northern Europe um, and uh, uh, the, the only other institution, I suppose, that can claim that in this period uh, is Harvard. Um, he briefly attended the Sorbonne uh, and then uh, began service under his father at the Royal Court um, and married Elizabeth Brooke, a name uh, which will uh, recur later, so just keep that in your mind. He was knighted in 1591, made a privy councillor, uh, became principal secretary in 96, and as chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and master of the court wards, had a significant um, income. Um, in terms of process, um, it was a high stakes game. Um, succession had become a very legally complex um, uh, issue. Um, Cromwell had effectively weaponized Parliament to eliminate unpalatable um, candidates through the Succession Acts, uh, 1534 to 43, um, the Treason Act, 1547, which effectively made it an offence to interfere with the succession and the will of Henry VIII himself. And there was also other legal complications, uh, such as the statute of Edward III, the De Natus Ultramare, which effectively would have ruled out uh, James Stuart, for example. Um, there were multiple candidates. Eight individuals are specified in Henry's will. Um, and only three make them over the line. 
And as one uh, contemporary uh, rather tartly commented, the crown was not like to fall to the ground for want of heads uh, that claimed to wear it. Um, and as it became process-driven, process it, um, it became politicized, and it became the subject of factional interests and debate. Um, the most important issue or important factor, I suppose, is that it became subject to parliamentary legislation. Uh, Henry was given a statutory right to designate his succession. Mary and Elizabeth were reinstated and the final will uh, of December 1546 effectively specifies the line of descent will be through the descendants of Mary Tudor and henceforth it was treasonable to interfere in that process. However, uh, it wasn't without its complications. Henry's will was amended on the 30th of December, 1546, and the fair copy was signed with the dry stamp because Henry was physically incapable of signing the will at that stage. However, the act specifies that his power to determine the succession uh, is by his last will in writing signed with his most gracious hand. So immediately with a gap in the hedge. Um, and uh, Henry died within 24 hours of the final will being signed and witnessed or, or stamped and witnessed by the Privy Council who were his executors. And immediately there were challenges. Edward VI uh, penned a device for succession in, a, in an attempt to override the will. Um, and immediately we have an issue of statute versus executive instruments and the interplay with the Treason Act. And uh, two significant executors dissented from it, the first being Cranmer, and more importantly, uh, uh, Montague, who was uh, master of the Court of Common Claims. Um, a second challenge came under Mary, who attempted to secure succession for the line of Margaret Tudor, uh, namely for Margaret Douglas, the Countess of Lennox, who was one of her ladies-in-waiting. And uh, finally, uh, Mary Stuart, through the intermediary of uh, Robert Melville, uh, sought to argue the stamp fee signature meant that she had a valid claim as well. Um, so back to the Suffolk claim through the Mary Tudor line, again, uh, one of the more uh, established members of the nobility was rather dismissive of uh, the candidates here either in the worst they are contemptible or not liked for their sex. Um, uh, again, the right uh, here is through Mary Tudor, uh, Queen of France and, and uh, later uh, Countess of Argyll. Uh, so they're effectively the children of Charles Brandon and their children. Um, but A, most of them predeceased Elizabeth, and those that didn't were eliminated from the game 
by uh, dint of bastardizing uh, their offspring when they married without uh, the Crown's consent. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, one of uh, the claimants, Fernandino Stanley, um, the rather exotically uh, uh, named Lord Strange, uh, uh, died mysteriously in 1594, uh, um, soon after the circumstances of the Hesketh plot were uh, unveiled because he revealed them to the government and it was put about that he was poisoned by Jesuits, um, although they would have been uh, principal beneficiaries of his candidacy. And incidentally, his daughter and Stanley, the last claimant of uh, that line, became uh, the unfortunate Countess of Castlehaven, uh, which loops us back uh, to an Irish connection. Um, which leaves us with the Stuart Lennox claims uh, through Margaret Tudor, uh, James VI and Arbella. Um, but we also have the Lancastrian claim, arguably a stronger uh, title, Isabella Clara Eugenia, uh, the sovereign of the Netherlands, um, a direct descendant of John of Gaunt um, uh, through the marriage of his daughter, uh, to the King of Portugal, although she was uh, a reluctant candidate preferring the comforts and luxuries of Brussels uh, to uh, the privations of London. However, all this activity generated significant political debate and there was significant uh, concern among Puritan uh, members of the House of Commons uh, who petitioned the Queen uh, to make specific provision for her succession. Now, Elizabeth was very hostile to any discussion of the issue, and she had them promptly rounded up and put on the tower. So Peter Wentworth, Henry Bromley, William Walsh, and Richard Stevens all spent time at her pleasure. And incidentally, they all um, at one time or another in the service or pay of Essex, who is uh, active behind the scenes in, in all of this machination. Um, the issue had also entered public discourse and uh, uh, the most obvious um, contribution to this is uh, the conference about the next succession published by um, uh, someone identified as R. Dolman, who is now believed to be a composite, a committee of recusants uh, led by Robert Parsons, uh, which effectively is a very uh, cohesive and coherent argument against hereditary principle, against primogeniture. It introduces the idea of a political contract between the monarch and the polity and also voices resistance theory uh, for the populace against the unsuitable uh, monarch. Um, it's also a detailed examination of the 14 um, existing or valid claims to the crown and its effect is disruptive and unsettling. Um, uh, James 
the sixth was particularly uh, distressed by it, um, as it, it certainly ran contrary to his own uh, views as to what monarchy involved. Uh, Cecil, however, was very complimentary and regarded the contribution in style more grave and sensible than others. Uh, and, and indeed that compliment uh, brought him under suspicion of papist sympathies uh, on, on the part of those in Cecil's um, or Essex's pay. But I think, I, I think this uh, points to the fact that succession had become part of a greater game. It was about the struggle for salvation. Um, and the political positioning uh, reveal uh, both Puritan sectionalism and also Catholic factionalism uh, around the issue. And, and by which I mean the, the developing conflict within the reticent uh, uh, community, uh, which is, is, is very evident after the deaths, particularly of William Watson and um, um, William Allen. Uh, and the, the, these manifest themselves in the dispute at the English College, um, uh, the rather uh, curious uh, affair in Wisbech Castle, which prima facie appears to be a dispute about who sits where at the dinner table, or whether or not we can have a hobby horse to have uh, Christmas celebrations. But it's really a rather visceral fight about the true nature of, of the Catholic Church and who should lead it and what sort of state um, England should be. Um, and that in itself provides uh, Cecil with a gap that he can exploit and leverage and drive a wedge between two sections of, of the recusant community. And one thing to remember is this is all fueled by very personal, visceral rivalries. Um, Robert Parsons was the bursar of Balliol. When he was bursar of Balliol, Christopher Bagshaw, the leading appellant uh, clergyman uh, among the secular clergy, was a fellow of Balliol. And they had a fight and uh, Robert Parsons lost his job and they hated each other for the rest of the century. Um, Blewett and Weston um, had locked horns before. They were both incarcerated in Wisbeach. And of course, Cecil and Devereux had not been on the best of terms since they were growing up together in Exeter House. Um, on the Strand, uh, which was, was William's uh, townhouse. And this manifested itself in very personalized attacks, um, as Camden remarked, with sharp pointed pens and venomous tongues, the Jesuits and seculars fight one another. So we have uh, the Archpriest Blackwell being referred to as a puppy dancing to the Jesuit pipe and Parsons, a misbegotten plowman, 
who sired bastards on his sister. Uh, uh, Parsons retaliated by uh, uh, calling Copley, who uh, came up with the previous uh, insult as a wanton idle-headed boy, and Watson has a strong, a wrong shape and, and blinking, he looketh nine ways at once. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's, it's not particularly high level stuff, but it does cut to uh, 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 the, the heart of the matter. In terms of the government's goals or Cecil's goals, the peaceful transition of power on the demise of Elizabeth to the strongest consensus candidate was his goal. And as a result, he had opened up channels uh, to Edinburgh, to Brussels, to Paris, and to Rome. He was also actively exploiting the Gallicanism of the affluence. So he was grooming to use a word, uh, Blewett, Bagshaw, and Anthony Chotney, um, getting them to petition Clement VIII uh, to shift his position on the oath of supremacy. Um, he was canvassing French support uh, for the secular clergy and was also cultivating uh, the career of a secular priest, John Cecil, who was not, as far as I'm aware, a relation, but was a paid agent um, who was deep in the recusant camp and feeding information back. Um, so, and the key element of that strategy was what emerged in the dying days of Elizabeth's reign, the protestation of allegiance from the secular clergy, which effectively split the recusants into two camps. And it also had the advantage of allowing the state to set about othering the Jesuits and their various sponsors. Um, so what had been an obstacle was suddenly turned into a political opportunity. So in terms of the transition, itself, at the end of the day, it was a one-horse race, or the least worst candidate won. Uh, and even uh, at the end of Elizabeth's life, Robert Parsons was backing Stuart Kling. Um, so Cecil now had a whole new raft of challenges to deal with. He had to manage a new master, and that brought its own particular uh, issues James was extravagant. Um, he also had many favorites and he brought a whole gang of Scottish noblemen into the upper levels of, of uh, the court. He also had a very complicated private life, um, which also had to be managed while he was very progenitive, as we can see from the lovely uh, family snap. Uh, he also had a fondness uh, for dashing young courtiers, uh, whether they were Scots like Hay, the Earl of Carlisle, Robert Carey, 
or indeed George Villiers, all of whom presented issues uh, uh, or certainly management issues for uh, Cecil. But the nature of the relationship uh, of the state with uh, the prime movers within the recusant camp had shifted. And there was also a definite shift in the narrative. And what we see now is the supporting cast, if you like, of actors move center stage. And they're effectively pawns in the game. So figures like Rodrigo Lopez, who was Elizabeth's rather unfortunate doctor who had made the mistake of babbling uh, about his treatment of the Earl of Essex for syphilis and ended up being hung, drawn and quartered for attempting to poison the queen uh, as a result. And this rather um, attractive uh, uh, engraving has uh, Lopez as a Jew uh, asking a rather Spanish looking fellow, how much are you going to pay me quid diabetes to poison the queen? And in the background, we have the Proditorum Phoenix Funis. Uh, the end of the rope is the end of the traitor uh, as a stark warning. And other characters, Patrick O'Cullen, John, Daniel, Hugh Cahill, and Edmund York, all end up at the end of a rope. Um, uh, so in summary, we have a cast of Irish Jesuits and Jews who are othered. Um, and uh, there, there is, again, just to, to um, um, mention that that chimes with the black myth of the Jesuits as conspirators, um, but it has its origins in the anti-Semitism of Spain rather than Puritan England. Um, it is uh, no uh, uh, coincidence that uh, a significant proportion of early um, entrants into the Society of Jesus were first or second generation converses. And certainly some of their German confers uh, rather dismissively referred to the Spanish uh, branch of the order as a synagogue of Jews. Um, and this sort of narrative was enthusiastically taken up uh, in Puritan England. Another factor in that narrative shift is that principles are no longer actors to be punished. They're unfortunate players who are being duped. Uh, so here we have an illustration of the secular priest, uh, uh, William Watson, um, seducing noblemen. Um, and in the background, uh, we have, uh, uh, let's see, I can't make a point of uh, Right, so, Vigay Clementian Regum. So, you, you know, behold the clemency of the king. So, the king shows up at the moment of execution on the scaffold uh, with a royal pardon, which was the fate that befell both of these fine gentlemen on either side who had participated in the buying main plots. The gentleman on my side being Walter Raleigh, 
and the gentleman on the other side being Lord Cobham, who was uh, the brother of Cecil's wife. Um, so basically, uh, the, 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 the narrative then steps up a further gear when we move to the powder plot of 1605. And around this, one is almost prompted to ask, where was the real conspiracy um, uh, in so far as, oops, uh, conspirators appear to be four guys. Um, so we, we have essentially what uh, was referred to in correspondence as the stirrings of restless men. And it's, it's interesting to remind yourself that some of the principal conspirators um, in, in the woodcut were involved in Essex's original coup d'etat in, in uh, 1602. Uh, particularly Catesby. And as the autumn of 1605 rolls along and that there is this rather stately pilgrimage through the West Country uh, or through the West Midlands to St. Winifred's Well in Flintshire, um, it becomes clear to Henry Garney, the provincial of the Jesuits, uh, that he has become the unwilling nexus of what appears to be a conspiracy. And when this is revealed to him in a conversation with Oswald Tessamont, who was a fellow Jesuit, his response is, we are all utterly undone. So he gets uh, what's going to happen to them now. And he also has the sense to realize that Cecil is already appraised of events and in Cecil's own word, he allows the plot to ripen. Um, he identifies Gerard, Garnet and Tessamond as being the principal actors in the conspiracy, not Catesby, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it has become a plot by Jesuits, not a plot by disaffected recusants. Um, and they are demonized, A, by the king, who calls them Puritan papists, uh, and also in the instructions that are given to Cope, who leads the prosecution of the plotters. He is to be quite forensic in tracing the plot back and to pinning the blame firmly on Jesuits and Jesuit confessors. Uh, and to demonstrate the iniquity of Catholics. That's his explicit brief. And it's quite clear from Cecil's own notes around this, that he has a very finely honed appreciation of the ins and outs of sacrament of penance, particularly, and that he has read in some detail Garnet's book on, uh, on the taking of the oath. So, uh, Effectively, what we see over the arc of a century is what is effectively a family matter, albeit a family matter of high politics, becomes uh, 
a sectarian issue, uh, an issue about salvation, and an issue that is about demonizing and othering a particular group within the recusant um, constituency. Okay. In, not <laughs> <laughs> So, where does this take us? Is it is it a new beginning or is it a long, a, 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 a wrong turn? And I think the answer to that is Charles the first was not his father. Um, uh, so uh, the nature of apotheosis went to his head, uh, literally. Um, but in the more shorter term, uh, I think uh, the, the, the issue politicizes and sectarianizes succession uh, and moves it into the salvific realm. Um, it also sees a revision of the Oath of Allegiance, which is effectively modeled on the Rekison's protestation of allegiance of January 1603. It also gives Cecil a new way to manage the king and to manage parliament, um, a way of um, supporting and uh, facilitating uh, the seculars and the archpriest Blackwell, and in the process, <laughs> splitting the recent community. Um, and as an individual, I mean, although we see Cecil smearing, manipulating, scapegoating. He is remarkably free of personal animus. If, if, if you read his correspondence around this, um, uh, he's, he is diligent, he's thorough, he's honest by the standards of the day, even his critics would attest to that, but he was clinically focused on his goals. You can clap like you. <laughs> The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.